I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. You know I've been talking about earned media value for quite some time on this podcast. My friends at Eisenberg have just raised the bar on earned media benchmarks with their social index. Social Index now gives you globally earned media values across a growing list of six geographies for all your KPIs across the top seven social platforms, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Snapchat, TikTok, Twitter, and YouTube. You can now visualize these values for deeper analysis, and they have a look-back window over two years of historical comparisons. Social Index is updated daily. Don't get stuck with old data. Over 1,000 companies have used the social index to understand the ROI of their social campaigns. And if you work with a social agency, you should demand they incorporate earned media values into your reports. Get your earned media value for social content. Visit earnedmediavalues.com slash Allen. Again, that's earnedmediavalues.com slash A-L-A-N. For all of us, it's about predicting where the consumer is going and getting half of it right. One of the things we want to do is create ads that don't suck. Embracing change creates great possibility. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today. Today on the show, I've got Ashley Reichheld. She's a principal at Deloitte. On the show today, we talk about the 2021 Global Marketing Trends Report. And they identified seven trends that we'll speak to a high level, but then dig into a couple in particular. The seven trends that they identified were purpose, agility, human experience, trust, participation, fusion, and talent. And now we go into quite a bit of depth on trust in particular as an area that Ashley herself has uh, helped to develop for Deloitte, as well as a new metric that we spend some time talking about. Then we also hit talent as well. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Ashley Reichheld. Ashley, welcome to the show. Well, thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. I love to start off with something personal, a little anecdote, if you will. And I, I've heard that you've lived in over 40 countries. Is that true? And what have you taken away from all of those experiences? Well, lived and worked, yes, because in some of those places, it was you know a week or two versus many months. But I have lived or visited at least every continent except for Antarctica. And you know, you learn a lot of things. You learn how to say thank you in a lot of languages. You learn how to drive on other sides of the roads. Mostly, though, I think you learn a lot about empathy and cultural difference. One of the last countries I was in was Australia. And when I first got there, I couldn't understand why there were signs all over the bathroom saying, don't stand on the toilet seats. 
it was only later that I understood that that was just a real cultural difference with Chinese visitors who were the primary visiting population and sitting on a toilet seat is considered dirty. So you don't, you stand on it. <laughs> yeah, little nuances like that, I can imagine uh, can throw you for a loop from time to time. They do, but you know, they make life more fulfilling. And if you take the time to figure out why they're so different, you, you just, you're doing a really good job of improving your understanding. And that's, that's important. Yeah, definitely. Well, let's let's talk business. We want to talk a little bit about this report that Deloitte has released, the 2021 Global Marketing Trends Report. What drove the report and, and what went into it? Well, this is our second annual report, but this one was really characterized by <laughs> the challenges of 2020. And that level of uncertainty that we're seeing has really impacted all of us in some way. Myself and my mom of three-year-old twins. And while I thought I was a master at balancing work and kids, I've learned a whole new set of work from home skills. <laughs> I've got a really speedy mute button, trigger finger, a pile of Fisher Price toys under my desk that, that bear testament to that. And this year, we really used the study to kind of help explore and break down some of that uncertainty. We use subject matter expertise. We use voices from the field and two overarching surveys from consumers, about 2,500 of them, and executives, but, uh, just about 400 of them, to help break down that uncertainty. Gotcha. In the report, I believe it's you identified seven trends overall, and you go kind of in detail on each of them. But can you tell me kind of just at a high level, what are the, the major trends? So the seven themselves are purpose, agility, human experience, trust, participation, fusion, and talent. And I think in general, agility, trust, talent, and a participation are fairly straightforward. Largely those are companies able to adapt. Do you trust them to do what they say they're going to do? They have the talent to do it. Do they enable participation with their stakeholders and their customers? The ones I usually get questions about not understanding are the other three. So purpose, and that's a company that knows why they exist and therefore can make choices a little bit more rapidly. That sense of purpose helps them particularly in times of uncertainty, actually, because they can they can make tough decisions right away. The second is human experience. And I often get asked, hey, so why don't you just call that what it is? Call it customer experience, call it employee experience. And I'm sure we'll talk about this, but the reason we call it human experience is because you don't wake up as a customer or employee. You wake up as a human being. And if we want to elevate experience, we have to understand you as a human. And then fusion, of course, which is that art of bringing together new business partnerships. Got it. Early in the report, you identify this drop in confidence across the C-suite. And um, just curious, what do you feel drove that drop? And and this is the second time I've seen this, this question, I guess, from Deloitte. You know, I was working with Deloitte, the CMO team within Deloitte and the CMO club on some prior research. And we looked at confidence drop or confidence levels, I should say, of CMOs in general. And while this most recent snapshot shows the drop in confidence, I'm kind of pleased that CMOs aren't last on the list now. <laughs> so maybe there's a, a small bright spot in this for CMOs, but tell us a little bit about this drop in confidence. Well, at the start of our chat, I talked about this notion of uncertainty that we're all feeling. And basically the research suggests that C-suites are humans too, and no exception to that rule. So on a percentage basis, CMOs aren't last, but they are second to last and, the, and within a percentage point of last. And you actually see the biggest declines with CIOs and, and COOs. And I think really what you're seeing is that lots of executives have gone into survival mode. And you see them, by the way, prioritizing things like improved efficiency and productivity over more human-centric initiatives. And that, that instinct is, is very common. But unfortunately, it does run counter to some consumer expectations. When we did this research, we learned that as times get tougher, consumers expect more connection, not less. So consumers are really looking for companies to step up. And you have C-suite executives who are uncertain and lacking confidence today and not really sure where the world is heading. And it's making it a very difficult environment to operate in. 
Got it. We're in these uncertain times to use an over <laughs> overused phrase uh, currently. But one of the other two data points that stuck out, I think, is a sign of the times, potentially. I'm going to quote these stats and then we'll, we can discuss what we think they mean. But 58% of respondents could recall at least one brand that quickly pivoted to better respond to their needs. And 82% said this led to them doing more business with that brand. It seems that these factors kind of together talk about, one, the agility that you you mentioned before is one of the trends. Two, this human experience component, like, are we actually delivering on what people really want and, and value? And purpose, I think, you know, alignment, potentially, of those two things, like what's going on in the world and what do people really need? Am I? Do you think I'm interpreting that right, just based on the data and what the trends that you're seeing? I do, although I think I'd argue that the, each of the trends has an impact there. If you think about an organization's ability to co-create with people, so Fusion, for example, if you're co-creating with people rapidly, you're able to respond and create and address needs more rapidly. If you're encouraging participation from your customers, then you're doing a good job or hopefully a better job at least of hearing what it is they need to be able to adapt. If customers trust you, they're more likely to tell you what they need and believe you when it comes out. And then of course, talent is critical to all these things because without talent, you, you can't do any of them. Right. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Right. Yeah, it, it's amazing to me. I mean, I talked to a number of businesses. I'm sure you do too. The ones that are at times kind of paralyzed, right? When there's a massive change going on in the world or within their market, they don't have those sensory, <laughs> I don't know if sensory is the right word, but you know, data sources that help them understand whether it's their customers telling them, whether it's data that they're looking at. It does start to um, highlight the flaws in your business if you aren't seeing the signs on the wall and, and starting to make your moves. Do you see that as well across many different businesses? I do. And I actually think the challenge is not just having the data, but the ability to interpret it and act on it. Those two things have to go together. And the really hard part is human beings aren't rational creatures. We are the sum of our experiences and those experiences shape what we value. Those values shape our emotions. And oh, by the way, 95% of our choices, according to HBR, are made based on subconscious decisions. So often, human beings can't really tell you what it is they think they need. You kind of have to observe and watch. So companies, companies, I think, have a hard time doing that sometimes, thinking that you can take mountains of data and turn those statistics into people, when in reality, people are a little bit tougher to read. Well, I'd love to 
dig a little deeper in two areas. One I know is near and dear to you, trust, and we'll talk about trust. And then the second I'll ask a question about is around talent. But when, when this report was created, trust was low. Why is trust so low? Oh, trust has been on the downward decline for quite some time, unfortunately. So I would say a number of things. Edelman does a great job of tracking trust over time, and they have shown that trust has been on the decline. If you take a look at government trust, for example, most governments had a small boost at the start of the pandemic, a rally around the flag type of behavior. And unfortunately, the U.S. didn't have that. So the pandemic, I think, further fractured the lack of trust that we're seeing. To give you a bare statistic about it, in in our own research, 60% of Americans don't trust each other to social distance. And when you ask them, how do you know when it's safe to come back? How do you know when it's safe to go to a restaurant or fly in an airplane? Only 4% would trust companies. So trust is really, really quite low. If trust is so low, I mean, what what are we trying to unpack? Like, what are we trying to, I mean, obviously trust is important. (laughs) If people don't trust you, even on an individual level, you could live a pretty lonely existence fairly quickly. (laughs) But in a company environment, what does trust help us unlock? What does it help drive? What's the impact that we're looking for? Let's quantify that for people, actually. I mean, overall, trustworthy companies outperform their competitors by two and a half times. So by multiples, trustworthy companies are doing a better job. But then you take a look in the specifics and you start to see things like 88% of customers who highly trust a brand buy it again. 62% would buy only from that brand in the category. And that's just on the customer side. If you look at the employee side, you see similar types of behaviors. In our study, almost 80% of employees who trust their employer feel motivated to work versus just 30% who don't. So we know that trust drives the outcomes we are hoping to see. Got it. Well, let's talk about how you measure trust. I know there's a measurement framework in the trends report for trust. Can you describe how that works and and frankly, what's included in it? Well, Alan, now you're talking about my favorite topic ever. <laughs> would be delighted to. Yes. <laughs> So as context to this, I've spent the last 20 years building experiences, thinking about experiences, helping companies to improve the experiences for for their humans, for their customers, for their workforce, for their partners. And one of our challenges ongoing has been, you know, there's just not one metric that does it. A lot of the metrics that we use either have a challenge because they're not predictive or they're just not actionable or they're really hard to gather. You have to gather reams of data instead of just asking some simple questions. So we created a new metric called the HX Trust ID, which we trade dark this summer. And what we did was to try to understand first, what are the drivers of trust? And when we did our research, we found that there are four categories or four signals that make up the majority of the variants we see in trust. Those are humanity and transparency, which together make up a brand's messages, and capability and reliability, which make up a brand's acts. Those four things together are what make up a brand's promise. Now, I mentioned that we were so excited about it because we wanted to be able to predict behavior, and that's exactly what we can now do. So by measuring these four simple questions, we know that when a brand performs on capability, for example, their customers are 240%, 240 more likely to buy again. On the employee side, we know that when companies feel that their companies genuinely care for them, they're 260% more likely to feel motivated to work. Oh, and by the way, It also drives double the tenure. It also drives more satisfaction with salary and on and on and on. Wow. That's amazing. I mean, the twofold, more than twofold impact that you can drive just by by driving better trust. And it's, I really like the fact that you guys are looking at this both inside, you know, the employee experience and trust, as well as how that impact rolls out to customers, because I'm sure you, you probably agree, but like starting internally, probably helps amplify the external effect. 
earlier this summer, I had the pleasure of hosting a webcast with Jeff Logan, who is the CXO of US Bank. And he would tell you that there's a direct link between customers and employees. In fact, he is in a unique position because he is responsible for the experience of both in his organization. And largely what he believes is that in order to build trust with customers, you first have to build trust with employees. So there is a direct link. And in our own research, we, we learned that people were looking towards employees to make their own choices. Customers are more likely to frequent a business, for example, 88%, I believe, when they think an employee is being taken care of. It's refreshing, frankly, to see the, the direct linkage there and just to have somebody that's focused on how do, we, how do we measure it? How do we improve it? It's so important. I mean, I've worked in many, many, many service businesses, but even for product businesses, I think just the higher and level engagement on the employee side leads to better outcomes, even if they're not touching and interfacing with customers on a day-to-day basis. So it sounds great what you guys are doing. Oh, we're, we're really excited, Alan. And I, we actually think that there's a really big gap that companies can step in to fill. Particularly in the scenario where government trust remains low, people will increasingly look to corporations to play a more significant role. And people are going to vote with their dollars and their feet to make that happen. Yeah. Yeah, no, it definitely is a void, especially as governments all around the world become less and less effective, frankly, <laughs> for whatever reason, politics aside. But yeah, and it's going to take those private companies and even private public partnerships, I'm sure, to to make a, a real impact. Um, things like, you know, we've seen with as one maybe big example, I was going to say small, but the big example would be like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation as an example of being able to help motivate change drive change. Well, you know what's fascinating about it? We look to Edelman a lot and Edelman has done research on trust for many years and their most recent research suggests that companies and NGOs and governments can't be or aren't perceived to be both competent and ethical. So an NGO would be highly ethical, but not very competent. A business is highly competent, but not very ethical. And unfortunately, our government is neither of those things. So when you think about not-for-profits, people believe that they're well-motivated, but don't believe that they are the ones to solve the issues. If we can help corporations really rebuild their trust and drive that belief that companies are that to help you too, that they do have your best interests in mind, we'll be able to improve those, those perceptions. No, it's it's an important nuance. And this was maybe dating this me a little bit, but 15 years ago, I was working with an NGO in the North Carolina area called RTI. It works globally around the world. And they were experimenting with public-private partnerships. And there were companies like Whirlpool and Microsoft, a few others that I'm blanking on at the moment. But I think this might be a, a build on your, your trust ID measure as we think about measurements and alignment, maybe between public-private partnerships, but incentives for both parties tended to get slow down progress, I guess is the best way to put it. Trying to make sure that they both, they were venturing into this together with very different potential incentive structures. And it's not that it was at the core, it was a maybe a trust issue, but it could easily manifest as such as you got into building the plans and implementing the plans together. But there's something there about how can you leverage each other's strengths that you just outlined being ethical and competent, but also make sure you're aligned around common goals and that you can you know, achieve those things. Well, now you're really talking about what we call purpose, which I think has a lot to do with it. And the research is really clear. Purpose-driven companies have been able to do better during the pandemic than not. One out of five customers will support a brand that has positive brand actions, and one out of four customers will walk away if they don't agree with brand decisions. So why you're doing things you do matter. Let's point to the airlines industry as an example. The airlines all have the same kinds of problems. We are 
largely panicked about getting back on planes today. You'll see that the desire to fly remains low, though we, we might see some boosts in the holiday. And the way airlines have reacted has caused real differences in how they're being perceived today. Delta has really stood out, for example, as being very customer and employee centric, putting the needs of people above the needs of the corporation from everything that they do, including simple things like keeping the middle seat open or having their employees talk about the fact that we are taking extra safety measures for everybody, for employees and customers alike. And we're seeing that have real traction. Yeah, I agree. I'd like to see more of that. And purpose, you sparked a, a, <laughs> a button with me, I guess. I do believe in purpose. And I think that it's hugely motivating just in and of itself to have a mission within the organization of why we exist and what we're trying to do for the world. But I also do think that what make, gives it teeth, if you will, is when it's aligned to business results and that we can both, it's not just what we say, but what we do. And that aligns to ultimately how we're generating returns for the business and for our stakeholders at, at large. I love everything about what you just said. And truthfully, that's a big piece behind the trust ID because we need to be able to measure a brand's ability to do what they say they're going to do and whether or not they are actually doing what they say they're going to do. Right. Yeah, I agree 100%. Awesome. Well, before we move away from this report, I want to talk just briefly about talent. It's I personally believe this is one of the biggest gaps or areas of improvement for marketers and their organizations. I mentioned the CMO Club collaboration that we did with Deloitte a while back. And in that in that work we did together, there was nearly 60% of the CMOs surveyed said that they did not have someone that could take over their role tomorrow. And I'm just curious how Deloitte is helping executives get ready for those the C-suite. Well, you know, I start with a real level of sympathy or empathy there because the job of marketing has changed pretty dramatically over the last 10 to 15 years. And we're expecting marketers to not just keep up with how customers and partnerships and products are evolving, but also to keep up with the level of digital innovation, with how to apply data to make those choices, with trying to recruit talent in a fairly limited field. So there's a, there are a whole bunch of reasons why this is hard and why CMOs are having a hard time making the replacements. One of the trends that I've seen is that increasingly people taking those marketing jobs aren't necessarily marketers. There's good and bad to that. It means that they come in wide-eyed and fresh-eyed and, and are able to ask questions that perhaps they couldn't had having had a marketing background. But at the same time, they're also relying on their teams to bring them up to speed. And that's pretty hard. And I think we're going to continue to see that because arguably the CMO has a job that has many, many different facets to it that requires a, a multitude of skill sets that are, are challenging to have in one body. Yeah, I agree with you. And I, I think there's various types of CMOs, right? There, to your point about different skill sets and backgrounds, and even the folks that I interview on the show, we do dive into people's backgrounds and many more in the recent history that I've interviewed have come from at least an early finance background, if not sort of an accounting background, which in hindsight, you, you think, why would that be the case? But I think they've already, you know, inherently got the right business language to translate to the C, you know, the C-suite. And maybe that's, they speak the language that's thereby kind of puts them in a class above the traditional marketer, so to speak. But you're right, like, unless they've been transitioned into marketing at some other point, they're missing a whole host of functional and experiential skills to be able to understand marketing is not accounting or marketing is not finance. Yes, we, we use assumptions and we build models, but assumptions are hard to measure in many cases. And I, I think there's like a 
has to be sort of this experiential component of like, I have done some things and yes, I couldn't measure them. And, but I kind of understand why they work and why they didn't work. That seems to be missing, not to mention being able to speak the right language in the C-suite. Well, you know, I do think there's some value to having kind of finance measurement background because to your point earlier, it is, it's hard to measure. And we often don't do a good job of measuring or don't have the tools to measure it. And so we make choices based on instinct, past experience, qualitative stories. Sometimes those are right and sometimes those aren't. So it's not surprising to me to hear that you see more and more people with a finance background come because I think what you're seeing is a gap of trying to do what we traditionally do, but make it more value driven than we have been in the past. No, I 100% agree. And one of my favorite quotes from from the show, well, it wasn't a quote, but this concept of marketing jujitsu, this marketer came from an investment banking background early in his career, transitioned to marketing kind of mid-career. And as he went into the CMO roles was, you know, in organizations that were highly pressured to measure marketing. And the jujitsu concept was, which is counterintuitive to somebody that just grew up in traditional marketing, is let's just turn it off and see what happens, right? Like, like let's, we talk about experimenting and, and trying to assess, can we understand what happens? There's no better way to do that than to just turn marketing off for a period of time and see how your measures trend, you know, your leads trend out and you hope that they trend downward in some, some respects, because otherwise you probably have been just wasting money. But it was interesting to me to hear that perspective. And I think only probably someone in like an investment banking or finance background would even have the gumption to try something like that, frankly. Well, Alan, now you got to tell me what happened. <laughs> what were the results? <laughs> the good news is that it did work, meaning that marketing was needed. The numbers trended downwards and it was an immediate response from the CFO coming back to the CMO saying, okay, 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 enough enough let's turn it back on let's turn it back on <laughs> so. <laughs> that's good we all, we all still have a job so that's good <laughs> yes yes exactly but, you know it does underscore the importance of what brands say and how they communicate with us really really does matter yeah yeah no for sure for sure well let's switch gears one of the things we love to do on the show is to get to know the person behind the microphone as well as what we're talking about when we talk about business so my favorite question to ask is is there an experience of your past that defines or makes up who you are today i thought a lot about that question and i think that the answer is not one you're going to like <laughs> <laughs> as a as somebody who's been studying experience forever, I would tell you that we are the sum of our experiences. And it's often difficult to point to one or two. You can kind of point to your wedding day as a memorable event, but is that really what shaped you? You can point to not how a moment you had, but the terrible manager, and you realize that's not going to be who I am when I grow up. And I think the reality is there are a whole bunch of those. My life has been shaped by travel and culture and sometimes being on the outside of things. And I think that's helped me take a different perspective in the world. Uh, I think that's a perfectly fair response. And I, I agree with you. I agree with you. So it's good to know. What advice would you give your younger self if you're starting all over? Well, it would probably surprise nobody who knows me to know that even through this interview, I've been pacing back and forth to <laughs> my laptop <laughs> by, by, by my headset. So I uh, have a lot of energy and I would tell myself younger and now to be patient, to be mindful and to take a deep breath. Sometimes you just have to go with the flow. <laughs> like it. Well, and this next question is a little silly, but I like asking it. Has there been an impactful purchase 
of $100 or less, say, in the last six to 12 months? I can't imagine a different answer than toilet paper. <laughs> there was such a dramatic need for us earlier. So it costs, what, a, a couple bucks to, to get a pack? It's not a big deal. But man, did we miss it. So I'm going to go with toilet paper. <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah. So I, I studied toilet paper in the U.S. market for a Canadian supplier, actually, uh, like a forest station company. But the learnings from a consumer standpoint, people are extraordinarily passionate about their toilet paper. I think as as marketers, we probably look at that as um, a category that is just a commodity, you know, it, it, low engagement. They could be not more wrong, frankly, not to mention the disturbing stat that I cannot get out of my head. And so I'm going to put it in everyone else's head is that in the U.S., there's 2% of people that do not use toilet paper. I'm just hoping that they have bidets. That's all I have. So, <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, all right, moving on. Uh, curious if there's any brands or companies or causes that you follow or you think other people should take notice of. Well, I was recently invited to join the board of the Center for Women and Enterprise, which is a not-for-profit that helps women and minorities and veterans, actually, start their own businesses. And the reason I'm so passionate about it is because this pandemic has forced us to really see what's important. And it has caused a whole bunch of people to really rethink their own livelihood. Many people have lost their businesses. We have seen restaurants closed time and time again. We're expecting another wave of hardship this fall as flu season hits. So the idea of being able to help some of our most underserved populations find ways to create value for themselves, for society altogether has been really meaningful. So most passionate about helping those groups of people, but also helping people start up new enterprises. Yeah, for sure. For sure. What was the name of the organization? I, I missed it. It's called CWE, the Center for Women and Enterprise. Okay. Awesome. Awesome. We'll link to that in the show notes. Thank you. I'd highly recommend people check them out. Yeah. Well, last question for you. What do you feel like is the largest opportunity or biggest threat that marketers face? And I have a sense that I might know where you're going to go with this answer, but I'll let Predict you answer. Me. <laughs> <laughs> I'd say trust, but I'm not sure. <laughs> no, you, you, you're 100% right. Only I'd categorize it instead as brand promise. I actually think marketers have a huge role to play in trust because marketers are at the forefront of how we are engaging with people, what we say, what we do. And making sure that those things match is incredibly important. Trust is, is gained in drips and lost in buckets, according to a woman I was in a panel with recently. And she's absolutely right. And marketers play a giant role in making sure people are clear-minded and understanding what it is we're trying to do for them. Awesome. Well, Ashley, thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been a fun conversation. I was so excited to join and I hope I can do it again. Awesome. Hi, it's Alan again. Marketing Today was created and produced by me. If you're new to Marketing Today, please feel free to write us a review on iTunes or your favorite listening platform. Don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends and colleagues about the show. I love to hear from listeners, and you can contact me at marketingtodaypodcast.com. There you'll also find complete show notes with links to anything we talk about on any episode. You can also search our archives. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today. Marketing Today.